Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. A few years ago, I was traveling in Asia and we took a flight into one city in Asia and then another flight to a different city. And once we arrived there, we took a long bus ride out to a large lake where there was a floating village. So we got from the bus onto a boat. And as we took this boat out into the middle of the lake and the shore disappeared behind us, I think I felt as far from home as I have ever felt. And a friend I was with was even more out of her element and visibly very uncomfortable. And at one point she leaned over and said, why are we here? Right as she asked that, a tiny boat floated up alongside ours and a woman looked up at me and we locked eyes. We were about the same age and she had her son with her who was about the same age as my son back at home. And I had this profound sense of shared humanity. I felt my heart swelling beyond what I felt my body could even hold as this woman just looked right into my eyes. And I thought, I'm here because these people are real, as real as I am, and I want to know about all the people I share this planet with, not only because I'm curious and I like to learn as much as I possibly can about everything, also because I love all my spiritual siblings, not just the ones who look like me or the ones who live like me. And... Also, as I talked about on previous episodes, sometimes if we don't make meaningful connections with people beyond our communities and our comfort zones, we might unwittingly harm them. We might support a war that kills or maims them or sanctions that impoverish them. We might unthinkingly use slang that demeans them. We might support policies or vote for legislation that limits their civil rights. So connecting with others' ideas and others' lives in person and in books helps us to make more informed choices and to make bonds with our siblings in this big human family and to realize also that we are not the center of the universe. So going on those long journeys far, far away from home are sometimes the most precious experiences, even though they can be uncomfortable. So I begin this episode with that metaphor because these books that I read for these last two episodes really gave me that a similar sense of traveling farther from home than I had yet traveled sure. on this podcast. And I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad that I made this journey, even though it was confusing at times, uncomfortable at times. I'm so glad that I undertook this effort. And I'm so grateful to have my dear friend Matthew Nelson back for this episode to guide us in this landscape and really to guide the conversation again. So welcome, Matthew. Thank you so much for being here again. Great to be back, but really this time surveying the wildest lands of queerdom. <laughs> Well, it's kind of validating to hear you say that too. <laughs> um, 
thanks. Okay, so let's dig in. We're going to just really quickly talk about the author. So Michael Warner is considered one of the founders of queer theory. He was born in 1958, and he received two Master of Arts degrees, one from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and one from Johns Hopkins University. He received his PhD in English, also from Johns Hopkins University, in 1986. And he is an American literary critic, social theorist, and a professor of English literature and American studies at Yale University. And he's still there. He's currently a professor at Yale, is my understanding. So with that short bio, I'll turn really the content of this this conversation over to you, Matthew, since you have so much experience with queer theory and have read this book, I think, multiple times. So I'll pop in now and then with questions, but I'd love you to take the lead and just acquaint us with this work. Perfect. Well, to really frame our conversation today, Amy, we, we really need the audience to grasp two essential terms heteropatriarchal normativity, what we were calling heteronormativity. This is, as a reminder, pervasive and invisible norms of heteropatriarchy that underpin our society. Again, we talked at length about this in the last episode. But adding on to that is a philosophical term, temporality. This is the social organization of time. And speaking about heteropatriarchy, and temporality, if we put them together, if we synthesize them, what we mean is that there is a temporality that turns on traditional family relations, heterosexuality, and reproduction. Now, this concept speaks to the social construction of a life, a whole life in heteronormative culture, soup to nuts, birth to death, and everything in between. Social scripts, stories, and myths that we have co-created and we've socially constructed as a society, rites of passage and rituals, norms and expectations, all of these things shape how a young person should proceed throughout their life. And we take for granted that all of these things exist. They so enrich our lives, they so saturate our lives that we don't even know that this process of acculturation is occurring from the earliest moments of our human existence. It all is oriented around what constitutes the good life. How can we live a great life? Well, we have all of these people and all of these technologies and devices around us to tell us what constitutes the good life. This is where heteronormative temporality comes in. Heteronormative temporality teaches and reinforces this through a series of celebrated milestones, which may include all of the following. For instance, coming of age rituals. Things that come to my mind are bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, quinceañeras, sweet 16 parties, um, all of those things. And, and baby showers, anniversaries, retirement, and funerals, all these things. This is heteronormative temporality. And you might say, but wait, no, that's just life. Why are you calling it heteronormative temporality? Well, again, that's because we just take it all for granted. This is the way it is. Therefore, this is the way it should always be. Duh. That's just how it is. Well, no, if we actually name it as 
an option, and then we might consider, hey, we could have different options. We could we could socially construct different ways of ordering our lives, marking important moments in our lives. And they don't need to have these milestones that are celebrated. We don't need to have those. Now, recently, that heteronormative temporality has been complex, complexified, problematized, disturbed. That is a relief that we are starting to think critically about the ways that we li- live our lives, the way that we order it so that we think we're living a good life. Now, what if we were to imagine queer temporality? How might queer temporality radically recreate the world which we now inhabit? We're going to proceed through this queer theory chronologically. As we said in the last episode, we'll start with Michael Warner, The Trouble with Normal, Sex, Politics, and the Ethics of Queer Life, which was published in 1999 through Harvard University Press. And then we'll go on to Edelman and Jose Esteban Munoz. Okay. Conservatives, gay assimilationists, such as Jonathan Rauch and Andrew Sullivan, both gay men, spent the 1990s and 2000s arguing that LGBTQ people should try to be as, quote, normal as possible, especially if they expect to win equal rights and respect in U.S. society. Culminating in the right to marry, these gents suggested we no longer be marginalized, but be fully American, fully free. We just had to fit in. We just had to be normal. Professor Warner argued in this book that marriage equality is the wrong goal for queer politics and activism. In his analysis of various discourses, and even some political, ethical, and aesthetic discourses that emerge out of the gay and lesbian community, he says that these discourses stigmatize sex work, various fetishes, polyamory, people living with HIV, and various non-normative, non-traditional families that society tends to just stigmatize, marginalize, and either heap all sorts of derision on or just want to forget all about. He argues that by participating with the state in elevating certain relationships, in this case, marriage relationships, this inevitably denigrates domestic partnerships, non-traditional families, and broad-based legal and financial protections for all vulnerable people in society, gay, straight, queer, uh, whatever, that, that this agenda really stultifies our ability to have a universal scope in bringing everybody into the human family, into the American experience, into citizenship and saying, you matter too, and we're going to help and support you all along the way. He urges LGBTQ people to abandon the pursuit of normalcy and fight for a queer planet of radical, universal prosperity and relational uh, affirmation. He says that at the heart of this new thrust, this libertarian thrust, this queer liberation is sexual libertinism. For Warner, being sexually free is kind of a synecdoche for ultimate freedom everywhere else. Sexual libertinism is central to his utopic vision of queer activism. 
but also ethical, political, and social transformation looms large for him too. All right. So now let's, let's get into this text. It's a really provocative text. Um, so Michael Warner initially says that patriarchy enforces heteronormative temporality with the tool of shame. And mm -hmm. LGBTQ people are implicated in this regime of heteronormative temporality. We shame each other. Mm -hmm. Sometimes our most piercing wounds can come from each other. Michael Warner, Michael Warner wants us to fixate on shame as one of these catalytic principles in heteronormative temporality. So we're going to turn to page eight here. Amy, would you read our text for us? Mm -hmm. He says, quote, almost all children grow up in families that think of themselves and all their members as heterosexual. And for some children, this produces a profound and nameless estrangement, a sense of inner secrets and hidden shame. No amount of adult quote unquote, acceptance or progress in civil rights is likely to eliminate this experience of queerness for many children and adolescents. Later in life, they will be told that they are closeted as though they have been telling lies. They bear a special burden of disclosure. No wonder so much of gay culture seems marked by a primal encounter with shame. End mm. quote. I think Marco Warner is really right here that we cannot progress in radical queer politics unless we reckon with this large white elephant, this rainbow colored elephant in the room, right, of, of shame. Um, mm -hmm. He goes on in, in page 24 to 25 to say, failing to recognize that there is a politics of sexual shame, I believe, leads to mistakes in each context. It confuses individuals cowing them out of their sexual dignity, it leaves national politics pious and disingenuous about sex. And it reduces the gay movement to a desexualized identity politics. He says, we've got to put the sex back in homosexuality, people. We have got to see, first <laughs> of all, that politicians like the rest of society, are leading more colorful sex lives than they would like to admit. And everybody's doing it. Or if not everybody, a lot of people are doing it, especially the quote-unquote straight community. They're not talking about it. They're able to pass without having to talk about it. Gay people feel like they shouldn't talk about it either, even if they are dabbling in more, so shall we say, radical queer sexual experiences, uh, because they want to sanitize the gay movement. They want to bourgeoisize the <laughs> gay movement. They want to show it as respectable as, quote, normal, just a, as Warner says here, a desexualized identity politics. Mm-hmm. Warner's argument is that we all have to come out of the closet about all these very interesting sex lives that we live and realize that there's actually nothing called quote unquote normal about sex at all, about our sex lives, about your neighbor's sex life, about anybody. Warner says in later chapters 
We will see how the politics of shame distorts everything, from marriage law to public health policy, censorship, and even urban zoning. I also argue that the official gay movement, by which I mean its major national organizations, its national media, its most visible spokespersons, has lost sight of that politics, becoming more and more enthralled by respectability. Instead of broadening its campaign against sexual stigma beyond sexual orientation, as I think it should, again, this is Warner speaking, Warner writing, it has increasingly narrowed its scope to those issues of sexual orientation that have least to do with sex. Repudiating its best histories of insight and activism, it has turned into an instrument for normalizing gay men and lesbians. So... Professor Warner says to us, we have got to reclaim sex and all of its permutations. We've got to put away shame. That is what is he asked. That is what he is asking of us in this first part. Now, the second plank he lays down, this is Warner contending that LGBTQ politics, as with the fight for marriage equality, is enthralled to heteropatriarchal temporality. Amy, could you read from pages 47 to 48 what Warner intends for us to mean by the fact that we are all hypnotized by heteropatriarchal temporality? <laughs> yes, I will. He says, quote, Try to imagine that heterosexuality might be irrelevant to the normative organization of the world. People are constantly encouraged to believe that heterosexual desire, dating, marriage, reproduction, childbearing, and home life are not only valuable to themselves, but the bedrock on which every other value in the world rests. Heterosexual desire and romance are thought to be the very core of humanity. It is the threshold of maturity that separates the men from the boys, though it is also projected onto all boys and girls. It is both nature and culture. It is the one thing to which every politician pays obeisance, couching every dispute over guns and butter as an effort to protect family, <laughs> home, and children. What would a world look like in which all these links between sexuality and people's ideals were suddenly severed? Non-standard sex has none of this normative richness, this built-in sense of connection to the meaningful life, the community of the human, the future of the world. It lacks this resonance with the values of public politics, mass entertainment, and mythic narrative. It matters to people primarily in one area of life, when it brings queers together. Gay political groups owe their very being to the fact that sex draws people together, and that in doing so, it suggests alternative possibilities of life. End quote. Okay. So that's some pretty radical queer theory that he is, he is suggesting here that instead of marginalizing non-standard sexual behavior and practices, actually by engaging in those things, you are actually engaging in a political act. But if we go back to the text here with Michael Warner saying that 
gay political groups owe their very being to the fact that sex draws people together and that in doing so it suggests alternative possibilities of life. What he's saying there is we need to reject heteronormative temporality and what we need to envision, what we need to co-create and socially construct together is a new queer temporality or queer temporalities and allow those to run like rabbits in our world. So by implication then, Warner is suggesting that LGBTQ politics allowed its thinking to get too small by making marriage equality its priority because the normalcy agenda held sway. Marriage equality became the be-all, end-all agenda item. You know, I don't read Warner as saying marriage equality shouldn't be one legitimate goal for the queer community to strive to strive after, but that the 21st century queer activist gamut should have been a grander one that would have secured freedom and protections for a multiplicity of alternative possibilities of life, mm-hmm. not just one that adheres itself to heteronormative temporality. And that is exactly what marriage is, right? Mm -hmm. Marriage is the cornerstone of heteronormative temporality. Mm -hmm. So this leads us back to the question we were asking before. How did what Warner is characterizing as an ill-fated quest for normalcy become a predominating preoccupation for queers? Amy, could you read that passage on page 53? Yes. He says, quote, What immortality was to the Greeks, what virtu was to Machiavelli's prince, what faith was to the martyrs, what honor was to the slave owners, what glamour is to drag queens, normalcy is to the contemporary American. Of course, people want individuality as well, but they want their individuality to be the normal kind. And given the choice between the two, they will take normal. But what exactly is normal? End quote. Great. Thank you. So let's turn to page 59. And Amy, would you read that for us? Yep. He says, quote, so it is ironic to say the least when we are now told that our aspiration should be to see ourselves as normal. No doubt gay people regard this as the ultimate answer to the common implication that being gay is pathological. No, they want to insist we are normal but this is to buy into a false alternative. The church tells us that our choice is to be saved or be damned. But of course, it might be that these are not the only options, any more than Democrat and Republican need be the only options in politics. Just so, normal and pathological are not the only options. One of the reasons why so many people have started using the word queer is that it is a way of saying we're not pathological. But don't think for that reason that we want to be normal. (laughs) So succinct. People who are defined by a variant set of norms commit a kind of social suicide when they begin to measure the worth of their relations and their way of life by the yardstick of normalcy. The history of the movement should have taught us to ask, whose norm? End quote. Oh, man. Yeah, it packs a punch. It's really, really succinct. And like I said, like... Uh, yeah, it's asking questions. Hopefully listeners are can see what I was talking about. It's asking questions I've never asked before. And he makes really interesting arguments, right? I mean, yeah, yeah really, I, really caused huh. me to ask questions about all of the all of the structures that we inherit and my choices within them. Yeah, Even the I ones mean, I've always taken for granted. 
I'm curious for you, Matthew, back to the topic about what marriage means. I'm curious about what would it look like to set aside adherence to heteropatriarchal temporality? What does that look like? So on page 75, he says, were we to recognize the diversity of what we call sexuality with a kind of emphatic realism in which many queers are unsurpassed, (laughs) prolific even, the result would not be separatism and could not be because it would give us no view of who we are apart from the fact that there are a lot of non-normative sexualities in the world. He's saying there's so much subterfuge out there. There's, There's so much covering and hiding about what our sexuality is like if we could all collectively come out of the closet about how strange and mystifying, oftentimes confusing our sexual desires are, and even our sexual practices might be, then we're creating some space for people to start to talk to one another that he believes leads to a queer utopia, to queer uh, temporalities that give people more agency, give them more freedom, give them more self-actualization. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a way, it's sort of like Warner's envisioning a multiverse, if you will, Mm. of temporalities that are considered valid to explore. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Another question. I'm wondering specifically what straight people can learn from queer temporalities? Because he brings this up too, that there's like this opportunity for straight people to benefit from these revolutions that he wants to happen, right? So so what could straight people learn from queer temporalities or queer ways of being? And then kind of like I alluded to a minute ago, like how would that influence our understanding of marriage in general? So let's go to page 116 And let's read what Warner is saying about what queer temporalities could look like. He writes, the impoverished vocabulary of straight culture tells us that people should be either husbands and wives or non-sexual friends. Marriage marks that line. It is not the way many queers live. If there is such a thing as a gay way of life, it consists in these relations a welter of intimacies outside the framework of professional institutions and ordinary social obligations. Straight culture has much to learn from it and in many ways has already begun to learn from it. Queers should be insisting on teaching these lessons. Instead, the marriage issue, as currently framed, seems to be a way of denying recognition to these relations, of streamlining queer relations into the much less troubling division of couples from friends. And I do find this very intriguing because what he's saying here is that sexuality and sexual relations should be much more free-flowing, liquid, circular, that friends become lovers and lovers can become friends within marriage, outside of marriage, but that sexuality and sexual energy is something that we all can partake in each one of us with each other so long as there are ethics involved there are ground rules there are boundaries and people are clear through their communications about what those boundaries are that we could usher in a new way of being human through the erotic nature in all of us (laughs) he wants us to think bigger than our current 
monogamous sexual experiences or relationships or marriage itself. Mm-hmm. And that is a hard saying, as we say in spiritual circles and biblical circles, that is a hard saying to a lot right. of traditional folk. It is. I do think that need, there needs to be something different, but you're right. It's very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable to, to open that up and see what that would look like. I don't know. Yeah, it is a veritable Pandora's box. Um, yeah, it is. It is. Warner wants to return to the riots of Stonewall and their aftermath where we could reimagine a new social order with rainbow temporalities. Hmm. Queer public, if you will, queer publics of ever widening circles of care, pleasure, and material support. These things would usher in a new way of being human on a planet beset with climate collapse, human rights violations, and staggering income and wealth inequality. Now, I mean, in a way, what the hell do we want with normal really anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Normal might very well doom us and what is happening with ourselves and on this planet. So this new social order starts with an unbridled embrace of Eros, according to Warner. Sex in all of its many forms as a model for the embrace of all the ways we are beautifully unique in this world and how we might reconfigure and reestablish ways of being in the world. Hmm. I guess, I mean, as we wrap up this episode today, I... I guess my, again, I just, I'm in and out of like, yes, yes, yes. I'm with you. Whoa. I'm not with you anymore. (laughs) But then like when I, you know what I mean? Like you got me, you got me, you lost me. You got me, you got, you lost me. But I think even in those moments of you lost me, um, I'm trying to hold an open mind and an open heart, even when I'm uncomfortable Hmm. and just be curious. And so I'm just trying to hold an open mind and see where the world goes and see what feels right to me in this moment, acknowledging that I might be right about things in the end and I might be wrong about them. And I'm just trying to be open to it all. Anyway, thank you for, as I said, like bringing this book into my life and helping us um, understand it and think through these issues today on this episode. I so appreciate you, Matthew. And it was just a pleasure again to have you be our teacher and our guide today. Well, again, I'm very thankful to be in this conversation with you, Amy, and I do look forward to the fourth and final episode where we'll bring this to a conclusion. 